Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I remember turning to her in, in London and saying, oh, I think I've just started a company in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> that must have been a very fun conversation. You know, it's the only time I've, I've ever heard her swear. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. How are we all doing this week? On the show, we are talking about the brain, specifically brain-computer interfaces. Now, of course, we've had a few folks over the past uh, year or two working on this technology in one form or another, and the idea is broadly the same, which is seeks to put electronics inside our gray matter. And a lot of these, initially, they're restore, aiming to restore function in very, very disabled people, but over the longer term, the aim is to basically be able to enhance all of us as human beings by jacking us directly into the web into artificial intelligence to allow us to speak to each other via thoughts alone etc etc you get the idea you know when you talk about brain computer interfaces or bcis as they're called you quickly get to these kind of fantastical futures but this week on the program you're very lucky because we have the head of a company who's been on this cold face longer than pretty much any of its rivals. Marcus Gerhardt is the chief executive of BlackRock Neurotech, which has developed a sensor about the size of a thumbnail, which you can plug into the brain, obviously, surgically. And it interprets to really high fidelity signals and translates those into actions from writing emails, as well as you'll hear, in some cases, restoring function by turning thoughts into, say, moving the arm of a disabled person with a, that has like a haptic sleeve on it, for example. Really incredible stuff. BlackRock is based in Salt Lake City in Utah, and that's really where a lot of this foundational research of this whole field really got going way back in the 80s. But after all the decades of work, Marcus reckons that, you know, having turned these banks of supercomputers as they were back in the day, hooked up to someone's head, um, pretty primitive relative to where we've got to, that now we're down to the size of a thumbnail and that BlackRock is ready to get this product out in the market, initially as a medical device um, for the severely disabled, but again, longer term, he sees this becoming something that is an enhancement, a human enhancement, enough so that full able-bodied folks, you know, kind of the masses, will eventually have a chip in their head. Who knows how long that will happen, if it ever happens. But that's, of course, the, the vision of Elon Musk, who has his own company, Neuralink, um, trying this exact thing. So anyway, I just find this endlessly fascinating, especially when you think about how much time you spend staring the palm of your hand where your phone is. What if, you know, in the future, maybe it's VR glasses or AR glasses in the interim, but eventually we get to this idea of just like, we don't even need to look at anything because it'll just be streaming in our brain. Wild. Anyhow, Marcus knows all about this stuff more than most people will forget, and he has quite an amazing story to tell just how some super interesting science way back decades ago has arrived to where it is today on the cusp of making it into the market. So we talk about that and a whole lot more. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Marcus Gerhardt of BlackRock Neurotech. Enjoy. 
so yeah, I think we initially connected because I am very interested in this whole idea of brain computer interfaces. And a few months ago, we had on Tom Oxley, the founder of Synchron, and they had some pretty exciting news about quote unquote, first implantation of their brain computer interface kind of little electrical stint, I guess you would call it, um, that helps, um, you know, these machines interpret brain signals to then allow very disabled people to use certain devices. And then you guys reached out and be like, well, well, they're actually not the first. We've been at this much longer than everybody else. So I'd love to just get a sense of first, who you are, and then also just what you guys are up to and kind of your history here, because I think you guys are kind of the OGs in certain ways. Well, thanks, uh, Danny, and thanks for inviting me to this. Uh, yeah, I'm Marcus Gerhardt. I'm the co-founder and CEO of BlackRock Neurotech, formerly uh, BlackRock Microsystems. The story goes back quite a ways, in fact, three to four decades, all the way to boarding school, where I meet Florian, my co-founder. Where was boarding school? The boarding school was in Wales, uh, of all places. In Wales? In Wales. And we got to enjoy uh, the fog of Wales, the foghorn blowing, uh, the beautiful <laughs> tidal difference and uh, an introduction to Welsh people, their curious language and their beautiful ability to sing. Where in Wales were you? It's the Vale of Glamorgan near or to the west of Cardiff, a place called St. Donald's Castle. Um, the school is called uh, United World College of the Atlantic. It's a network of schools that were created after the Second World War in an effort to avoid uh, war again. Wow. Their belief was that education could be used to undermine the lack of or further the development of international understanding. And so the idea was bring a lot of kids together and put them through an academically quite rigorous plan, but also other activities and see how they work out their difference as have them realize that stereotypes are not particularly useful when trying to understand mm. other cultures and people. Um, yeah, a, a phenomenal and eye-opening experience, I think, for most people who get uh, the privilege to, to go to this kind of school. So where are you from originally? I am uh, originally German. My parents are from the north and the south of Germany, but grew up internationally, a bit of an international citizen. I was born abroad, uh, lived in the Middle East, lived in the Far East, and... Uh, then proceeded to live a couple of years in Germany, but uh, have really moved around the world quite a bit. Wow. So you meet uh, your co-founder, Florian, at this very distinct kind of interesting place out way out in Wales. Yeah, and he it's the kind of place where people asked each other, even at the age of 16, what they wanted to do later in life. Yeah. Frankly, and to be honest, I did not know. But when I asked Florian, he responded instantly and he said, he wanted to create the bridge between bionic and artificial limb. I mean, I was blown away. As a 16-year-old? As a 16-year-old. My wife was there as well. In fact, she was the one who asked the question. Your wife also went to yes, this place. Yes, yes. This feels like a very interesting place and a whole like podcast on itself. I, I, it could be. I, it should be because uh, they're, they're a phenomenal network of schools. But in any case, uh, she responds by saying, you're an idiot. How could you possibly know at the age of 16 what you're going to do later in life? You're such a boring guy. And yeah. in some ways, she was right and she was wrong because to, to be so focused so early on can, can be challenging. But what I found uh, intriguing about Florian was not only that he had this vision so early on, but that he then, in fact, proceeded to build his entire career 
to achieve exactly that. And what he was motivated was two things, one of which I shared. One was um, sort of a deep passion for patient care. Um, his mother was exposed to paralyzed patients and helping them. At this school, I ended up teaching blind kids and physically challenged kids how to climb, how to abseil. What? Yeah, once you act, interact in such close manners with people with such profound disabilities, and by the way, they wouldn't necessarily call them disabilities, really makes you question how you approach certain things in life. And I remember distinctly an interaction with a blind individual who was who I was trying to convince to climb and then to abseil. And uh, she said to me, I mean, this was a kid nine years old. She said, I said, come on, you can do this. Come on, you can do this. And she said, well, why should I be able to do this when you don't believe yourself you can do this? I said, what do you mean? She says, there's doubt in your voice. Hmm. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> okay. All of her other senses are so much more heightened, I exactly. presume. Um, in any case, a, a deep passion. What Florian had on top of that was a deep frustration that technology was not doing its bit to provide better solutions. And that is what he made his core focus. To take technology, not just develop the very best technology, but to take technology whenever it is ready and bring it to patient care and have impact on patients. So the first company he creates out of university while he's still doing his PhD is a sensor company that is focused on uh, providing sensors for the automotive industry, was used in Formula One cars, um, was later acquired by Siemens. And part of his endeavor was to see that this technology worked next to brakes, would work next to engines, right. to very high temperature environments. Because in essence, what he was testing was how to make technology work in the harshest of environments, the human body. And we stayed in touch. I found my calling uh, finally after doing my postgraduate degree at Oxford and jumping headlong into a startup company of a friend of mine um, in the dot-com boom era. And I realized what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was to create ventures. So what was your dot-com thing and how did it go? Because I got out of university. I didn't do any advanced degree. I just did my bachelor's and I was right, went right into the kind of, into the, the heat of the boom and I'll wait for your story, but I'll, mine didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, we were we were really early on. Uh, the two co-founders took this on, and one of them had a great story of heading out to the U.S. as a Goldman Sachs analyst. And the guy, the partner at Goldman Sachs, said, "Hey, listen, can you take this meeting? I haven't got time. I've got to take care of an oil company. This is this woman Meg. She's starting something onliney. Go go and meet her." And that was Meg Whitman. And of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he got exposed at the first second to the Internet of Things, to to e-commerce, to all these concepts. And so for those who don't know, Meg Whitman was the founder of eBay. That's right. And um, we set up a B2B e-commerce platform in the UK, uh, received some funding from mm. 3i, a leading venture fund at the time. Oh, yeah. And it all went, I mean, just through the roof in terms of raising funds, in terms of creating an exciting concept, but it was far ahead of its time. And I remember a moment in London as we were growing the company quite rapidly, but we're extremely concerned whether this technology could be brought to the customer in the way the customer wanted it and needed it right now. Consumers were ahead of businesses at that point. Mm. So consumer things like eBay were working, but business things weren't yet. And um, there was an office above us with these three guys that I met in the staircase and we went to lunch together and they said, what are you doing? I'm like, we're doing this e-commerce platform. And they're like, wow, that's fantastic. 
do you want to join our company? We're out of China. And I'm like, well, you know, it's a, I, I'm so busy with all of this. What are you thinking of doing? Well, also e-commerce, but a bit different. And that was Alibaba. Oh, my God. And you said no to that one, I guess? Of course, of course I did. <laughs> so <laughs> while I paint a picture of it being quite a phenomenal journey, it was an adventure of many ups and downs and also missed opportunities for sure. But in the end, the dot-com boom was followed by the bust. We actually managed to sell the company after that still. Mm. What was the name of the company? It was called Mondus, M-O-N-D-U-S. Uh-huh. And it was the leading sort of e-commerce platform at the time. We sold it to uh, the Yellow Pages in Italy, um, Seat Pagina Gialle. And the idea was that they were sitting on a cash cow business, but they were concerned that this internet... It was, it was about to kill the Yellow Pages. Yeah. ...out of business. And of course, it did in the end. It just yeah, took yeah. a lot longer. So... Many of the ideas and concepts, even in that first startup and the things we were doing, and by the way, we were massively naive. I mean, that was the first business we ran, right? We made lots of mistakes, but the basic and underlying concepts all in the end proved to be true. And in fact, Alibaba, you know, turned out to become a multi-billion dollar company. Multi-hundred billion. Yeah, but it, it all hinged on what I've realized to be one truth in creating ventures, which is timing can just about be everything. Yeah, I've raised a quarter of a billion dollars in my career of doing venture creation. And I would not have the hubris to say it was either my good looks, which I have very little of, or my intelligence. <laughs> More often than not, it was timing, being at the right place at the right time with the right partners, and then playing it the right way. What did Mondas do? He says an e-commerce platform, but it was it something that was kind of quite basic, letting you know, allowing companies to buy and sell stuff. Yeah, it was. Well, it was to to cover their indirect purchases. So um, where Alibaba went into strategic purchases uh, components, uh, what we focused on first was indirect purchases, everything to do with your office needs. I see. Um, because a lot of overhead was being spent on it, and there was some price sensitivity, but not an awful lot. And so an online model, and today that exists. I mean, it's run differently. It's not necessarily platform. It's Staples online. It's this online. It's that online. Yeah. Um, but the idea of auctioning, we had RFP, RFQ systems in there mm. is everything that today you have in Alibaba and that you have in eBay. So, And so did you go through that whole, the whole roller coaster of... Hey, we've got this company. Oh my goodness, three eyes investing. Oh my gosh, all of a sudden we're in our 20s and we're millionaires and life is wonderful. And then the the air goes out of the balloon and it all comes crashing down. You're like, oh, actually, we're not millionaires. We're not as smart as we thought we are. And then, and then you kind of come out the other side. Did all of that happen, basically? Because that feels like a, you know. Uh, a lot of those things happen, not necessarily the millionaire part, because I wasn't a co-founder. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of the hype and then bubble bursting, a lot of the self-questioning after periods of extreme confidence building. I tend to refer to it as a, a multiple MBA in the course of three years. And uh, you know it allowed me to see what I wanted to do later in life, which was to create ventures, build people around mm -hmm. it, have them own a vision and, and make that into a successful business. So uh, in the end, I've, I'm very grateful. Uh, but yes, otherwise, everything you just described in full force, um, I remember yeah. hiring... I think 40 people in the course of six to nine months, but try to do so in a mindful manner. And in the end, while, you know, when the bust came, many of them had to move elsewhere. I took comfort from the fact that 
over 90% of them moved on to jobs with higher salaries, um, with improved careers. And for many of them, it was also a stepping stone into very different career paths than they would have had otherwise. So helping companies buy staplers, for example, is very different than implanting electronics into the brain. So how did you end up here? That's right, but only superficially so, because in essence, it's all about venture creation around innovation technology, around realizing something is going to happen, uh, technology is going to play its part in it, and ensuring that not only a few early adopters take it on and feel convinced by it, but that slowly but surely you create a path towards commercial viability. And that, in the end, is the same with a brain-computer interface. This technology has been around for many, many decades. It's been thought of by journalists, by uh, writers and authors, yep. in many different guises for decades. And I remember in my teens and 20s reading sci-fi about exactly this. Yep. Some excellent British authors, uh, Ian Banks, uh, describing exactly this kind of situation. So it's not as if we came up with the idea. What we see ourselves as are the people who are going to make it work and make it commercially viable. And that, in essence, is actually the same as pretty much every venture I've looked at. Um, and so it goes even to the founding of BlackRock when Florian comes to me in 2007 and says, look, I've got lots of exciting IP. I want to get this going, neuroprosthesis and, and getting people to move again and, and walk again. And, and I said, OK, I'm in. Upfront, I'm in because it's a no-brainer for me. So, how did he have that IP though? Because that's not a small thing, right? It's uh, you know the difference between kind of ones and zeros in software and creating something that can go in not only in the body but in the brain and actually function. That's a, I mean, that is not a small thing. No, that's true. So he um, did his PhD in Germany, then was offered a position at the University of Utah, focused on microelectronics, and while doing so was focused on miniaturizing small electronics and effectively got to, and I remember when he pitched up at my doorstep and we were on vacation, my wife and I in Mallorca, he flew all the way just to, to convince me. And he brought this little box. It was kind of a, a demo box that showed the different layers mm. of his device. And in this box were, I don't know how many layers, but ultimately a chip that could be implanted in the body, record data, stimulate and provide all sorts of very cool uh, uh, impact on humans. And, and that's what he brought. So that's what he had worked on and how he'd focused his uh, academic drive on. Right. And University of Utah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of a has some history here, right? In this type of research. Yeah, they uh, so the Dick Norman at the University of Utah invented the Utah Ray, which to this day is a critical component to our company, but also to the BCI field, because what he created was a microelectrode array. Initially, I think with a purpose to to support auditory or or, or um, visual prosthesis, and he was then in turn approached by. John Donahue, another big name in the neuroscience yeah. community. Is he the one who was at Brown University? At Brown Is University, right? exactly. And he suggested that they use this in the brain. And that's what kicked off BrainGate, uh, a trial, into using this kind of electrode in the brain, recording and then later uh, stimulating. And BrainGate, a company was created called Cyberkinetics, and that was, there was a lot of hype because this was what, 20 years ago-ish? And there was a lot of hype? 2006. So Dick Norman invented the Utah Ray in 1989. 
What is the Utah Array? So the Utah Array is a four by four, today is a four by four millimeter chip that has a hundred pins on it that protrude by about a millimeter to a millimeter and a half. They connect to the tissue and act like a microphone. Got you. They record neural data from the brain or from peripheral nerves. We've since then taken it to all sorts of other places in the brain and the body. But that in essence is what Dick Norman created in 1989. One of the first guys to build it for him to this day works for BlackRock and is a lead engineer on uh, the Utah Ray technology and other micro electrolyte technologies we have. So it went from that 89, and that's why it's called the Utah Ray. Uh, the academic papers started picking it up as the Utah Ray. We chose not to change that because why, why mess with so much history? And uh, John Donahue, Brain Cade, took it to the brain. 2006, Matt Nagel, a tetraplegic patient, is shown to write an email and send it with his thoughts alone. But that is, correct me if I'm wrong, that's like a, he is kind of strapped into a whole bunch of wires and stuff. No, that very first setup, I mean, was a rack mounted set of supercomputers behind him, 19 right. inch, a whole wall full of it, one electrode, but they were able to show it, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's like Apollo mission, a first sight at what is possible. And mm. if it hadn't happened, I'm not sure that either Florian or I would have had quite the confidence that we did even at the time that mm. something could be done here. And that was 2006? 2006. Right. Unfortunately, that VC started running out of capital. That company, Cyberkinetics, was running out of capital. Yeah. And um, in any case, when Florian approached me, I looked at all of this. I said, okay, this is interesting. This is super cool. But how are we going to weather all of these fundraising cycles we're going to face? Yeah invariably face and, and make this a success. What if we call the engineering off by a year or two? What if mm. something comes up with the FDA? What if, what if, what if? And so after I, I asked Florian for six to nine months to just think this through. And um, I, I went to him and I said, hey, listen, I've researched the medical device field because I hadn't done medical devices up to that. Point. Yeah. And it's the worst performing sector in VC history. Yep. This is a disaster zone. This is a cemetery of failures. I suggest we approach it a different way. We don't just go for one pitch and raise lots of VC funding to then maybe run out two years, three years down the road. But instead, why don't we build up a company, our company that creates revenue very quickly within three years, we have revenue and we have profitability in three years. We have our own cash so that we can decide to invest that into the technology. It means we'll always have a basis to stand on. And irrespective a little bit of the fundraising cycles, we can run mm. our company. And um, I'd also hope that he would think about this for six to nine months and it would take him a while to find a good solution because I said, what we should do is find an asset somewhere, take the asset on, and then build on top of that. Right. I was still closing out another venture I was doing and I, I needed six to nine months. And Florian being Florian was back in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks later, he calls me. And he says, I found it. I found it. I said, you found what? I said, the asset, the asset you want. <laughs> what is it? And it's this company, Cyberkinetics. They're running out of capital. We can acquire it. We can take it over, um, including some grant funding. Mm. There's, there's technology there. And we can build on top of that. We can bring all my IP in and, and build it on top of it like a platform. And I, I just thought, oh, man, this guy is going to be <laughs> hard work. But uh, yeah, kudos to his passion. We sat down. We realized that this technology could be sold into the research neuroscience market. Mm. Um, there was an individual there with a lot of 
a focus on revenue generating. Uh, Andy Gottschalk, we made him the CEO, we acquired the asset, we created BlackRock Microsystems. And the first purpose was to sell these tools to neuroscience research communities. Right. To become ultimately the premier player in the neuroscience research market. It's a niche market. It wasn't ever going to generate billions of dollars, but uh, we felt it could generate four or five million dollars, some cash flow positive element, and, and we could build from there. That all worked much better than we thought. We were profitable in nine months. Mm. Andy did a great job of building up that business. And uh, I came over to the US because it was growing and growing. I then finally convinced my family to move over to the US. And where were you living at the time? We were in Cologne at the okay. time, my wife's, my wife's hometown. Yeah. Uh, when we created BlackRock, I was, we were in London. I remember turning to her in, in London and saying, oh, I think I've just started a company in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> that must have been a very fun conversation you know it's the only time I've, I've ever heard her swear <laughs> <laughs> um so uh we we fast forward i then moved my family the company's doing really well we're now one of the top players in that space mm. and as i take on the role of ceo i ensure that we're profitable and we've been profitable every year since then oh wow and we became the number one player in human research and providing tools for human researchers um, whether it's in epilepsy and in, in bci and florian at the time already hinted at this being possible, but really became fully transparent over the course of building up this company, was that accessing that neuroscience research community was in fact extremely valuable. In some ways, what we were was the sort of pickaxe, the mm. Levi's approach. Yeah, um, We were providing the smartest people in the country, in Europe and Asia, genius neuroscience researchers doing all sorts of things from yeah. foundational basic science, but all the way to translational science. We were supporting these guys with tools. And as and when they came up with a new discovery of how to maybe approach epilepsy or how to approach restoration of function in a BCI setting, they would come to us. We would know about it because our tools were enabling it. Right. But they would discuss with us how they would now commercialize this next and that is, to a large extent, the enormous strength that we have as BlackRock and why, in fact, we're the BCI player with the very first human patients. It goes all the way back to Matt Nagel in 2006. And yeah. since then, 31 more human patients who have used this technology to demonstrate a variety of different uh, sort of applications. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So 2006, Matt Nagel, he's strapped into all these supercomputers to, to be able to write an email with his thoughts. Where are we right now in terms of that kind of that advance of that technology? That's 16 years ago. And it does feel like we're kind of getting at this interesting point, because again, I don't need to tell you, Elon Musk has brought a lot of 
attention, good or bad, to this field with some very big promises around, you know, effectively telepathy and trying to create this robot that you can just, you know, drill a hole in your head and then everybody can have one of these and this is the way we're going to survive the AI apocalypse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But just trying to understand what the kind of the state of the technology is, how f- and kind of where it is and where it's going next. Yeah. I mean, it's a fundamental difference. When we started BlackRock and would talk to investors, they threw all sorts of barriers in our way. They would say, well, hang on, an implant in the brain. And all we could point to was a pacemaker. I mean, at the time, there was no real applications of implantable technology in the brain. DBS was starting, but beyond that, not very much. So the story we told was, look, we're going to be building the pacemakers of the brain, Mm. but huge questions. The next question was, oh, oh, but but look, this device won't last. I mean, you've shown Mm. this one patient, but it won't last. It's got to last for years and years. Well, today we can point to eight years in human. And what is the application for that person who has it or people who have it, have had it in their brain for eight years? Yeah, so that's Nathan, who's been part of research studies uh, for that period of time and has been able to show a variety of things, moving a prosthetic arm. What is his kind of affliction? He was paralyzed from the neck down, complete tetraplegic, following a car accident, aged 18. Wow. And he joins the research uh, study with uh, uh, Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh, and um together with them, uh, demonstrates a whole host of world's firsts. And there's a great video of him meeting Barack Obama. He fist bumps him. So the prosthetic arm fist bumps Barack Obama. This is Nathan Copeland thinking all of this. He's moving the hand. He fist bumps. Then he shakes his hand. And then Nathan says, Mr. President, um, your hands are warm. And the way, the reason why he's able to say mm. that is because there are sensors in the prosthetic hand. And as they shake Barack Obama's hands, there's a signal that's sent back through to Nathan's brain that mm. tells Nathan's brain that what he's touching is warm. So now is that a, like a haptic glove that he's wearing? Uh, yeah, effectively sensors on that. Uh, the, he, he used the APL arm, a super complex prosthetic arm developed with the help of, uh, of DARPA funds and uh, at APL, just phenomenal technology. Mm. And he uses that and they added sensors on the fingers that would tell him what the temperature was. And that signal was sent, stimulated in his brain to tell him it's warm, not cold. Wow. And, and Barack Obama kind of responds and says, you know, quick-witted as he is, he says, look, I'm a lot more nervous about meeting you than you are about meeting me. <laughs> right, 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 right. Longevity is shown. And we've, we've shown this in non-human primates for 10 years plus. So the question of can this last for five years plus or 10 years, hmm. tick the box. Yep. Can this work in different applications? Well, you showed Matt Nagel, but that's as a very specific application. Can you show how this works for restoring sensory feedback? Mm. Can you show that it works for movement of a prosthetic? Mm. Can you show how it works for the control of a mouse or a cursor? All of these things have now been shown with various research institutes the world over. Pittsburgh, Brown, BrainGate, Stanford, right. and I'm missing lots of them. There's, there's 18 or 19 leading centers now that we work with who have done phenomenal work on showing different levels of efficacy. A tetraplegic patient controlling the spoon to his mouth and being able to feed himself again. Wow. Ian Burkhardt at, uh, at Ohio, able to use his own arm. There they stimulated his own arm. He uses his own arm, grabs a glass of water, brings it to his lips and drinks. 
And Ian talks about how this device today gives him increased independence and improved quality of life. So when you're talking about a prosthetic arm versus someone's actual arm, that prosthetic arm, these aren't people who don't have arms necessarily. It's just something that it's almost like a whole sleeve that has that can kind of move your actual hand? Or is it a mechanical arm that is kind of attached to the body somehow? Like, how does that work? So a mix. So they, they have their arms or, or the, the uh, BCI pioneers that uh, we've worked with. Um, Ian has his arm, but he's tetraplegic from the neck down. He has a little bit of control of the shoulders mm. and his arms are pretty limp, right? Because there's not a lot of muscle renovation. So, but what he can do because he can move his, his shoulders is he can move his, his hand fixed like this. So I in fact, see. Ian is able to drive a car. He has these, uh, these very cool tetraplegic adjusted car uh, controls and he puts his hands in them and he can move them. But he, he doesn't really have any control over his digits, his fingers. But what, was, uh, what, what Battelle together with Ahaya was able to do with our BCI in his brain was they put a sleeve, an electrode sleeve over his arm and stimulated that so that Ian was able to start moving his individual digits again. And there's a video of him playing a toy guitar. Wow. And you can see him moving right. his fingers again. In the case of Nathan, also has his arm. He is uh, even more progressed tetraplegia, can't really move his shoulders much. And uh, with him, they connected his thoughts to a prosthetic arm. So the data was collected in his brain, was then brought out by wires yeah. and then connected to the prosthetic arm. And they do blindfold experiments where the researcher, uh, Rob Gaunt or Jen Collinger, they touch his index finger and Nathan can say, ah, that's my index finger. Oh, that's my pinky. Oh, that's my thumb. And then they get him to move the individual fingers of the arm because they've connected the data coming from specific parts of the brain. To this mechanical arm that's set up near him. Exactly. Wow. So longevity, we have yeah. shown that with our neural interface. Neuralink hasn't, right? That puts them at a disadvantage. Neuralink hasn't shown much, right? They've shown that, hey, we can make a monkey play a video game with his mind. Yeah, but they've shown passion, and I'll take that, because we need a lot of that in this space to move the field forward as a whole. Hmm. But they don't have proof that their technology will work in the human body for five years plus. We've shown it in humans. They haven't shown, and, and we've shown it now in 32 human patients, that you can do different applications and that you can connect to different parts of the brain. So longevity, proof in human, different applications, different parts of the brain, all of these things have been done. And on top of that, we miniaturized the whole system. So where Matt Nagel was sitting next to this rack-mounted system, we have yeah. taken the power of those rack-mounted supercomputers, miniaturized them onto thumbnail big electronics that weigh less than, mm. a, than three grams. In fact, now weigh less than one gram because we had to put the stuff on mice set so to weigh less than a gram, which all has a huge benefit for human yeah. application because now we can provide miniaturized devices. In fact, the BCI pioneers now don't have the big boxes on their head anymore that you see still in some of the mm. videos. It's a little box this size with an HDMI cable coming from it. So much more manageable not necessarily a solution for consumers, not necessarily a, a solution for all tetraplegic patients, but for some who have no other choice, it's an acceptable form factor. Naturally, we will move this technology to increasingly less invasive, more wireless form. But we are at a point now where we are confident that we can bring this to market and offer this to tetraplegic patients. That was not possible 16 years ago. And is that what you would be offering, just so I understand? 
because again, talking to, to Tom Oxley at Synchron, what they have, they, they go in through the jugular and put, push this stent packed with electronics up into the brain. And it allows certain functions that restore certain functions that people currently don't have. And that is wireless. So I think he said they implant something in the chest, which is kind of like a Bluetooth receiver. And then that speaks to your iPhone or whatever. And that's the kind of technology stack, so to speak. So what are you guys doing or what's the plan there? Is it is this still wired or is it wireless or what's the kind of path? Yeah, in the first instance, it is wired. That is the efficacy we achieve today. And what I think uh, Thomas Oxley's approach is, is quite ingenious and great to have as an alternative approach. He is not able to get the bandwidth that you require to restore function at this level. I see. And, and that's the issue. His, his approach is permanently bandwidth limited. He, can, he won't be able to change that. It is what it is. But will he find some uh, niche applications that will have patient impact? I hope so. I really hope so for the benefit of patients. Our approach is so successful because it gets the high data, the fidelity of data from the neural signals, from the brain, or when we deploy it, we also deploy this technology in peripheral nerves. The key thing from our perspective today is to get all of this data and then to work on it, um, manipulate it, bring it back into the brain. Maybe in 20 years time, we can do all of this non-invasively. Maybe we can get at this data non-invasively today, impossible. Yeah. And our advantage is that we're getting it directly from the neurons or the peripheral nerve. Uh, so we deploy the same technology in the auditory nerve. And instead of like a cochlear implant trying to send signal to it, we're in the auditory nerve. That allows us to have this efficacy. So for example, I'll, I'll give you a comparison. For ALS patients or aphasia patients, we've been able to show our technology working at 90 characters per minute. And in fact, most recently, a research partner showed 150 characters per minute. 150 characters, that's, you're talking about letters, like spelling, writing things out. Correct, yeah. That gets us very close to able-bodied average speeds of typing. And so when you think about an ALS patient or somebody who can't communicate and needs to use an eye gaze tracker, uh, that's the standard today, you need to look at what speed and accuracy are they able to do this. And an eye gazing tracker is about a fifth of our speed today. Right. We can do 90 characters per minute. An eye gaze approach is about a fifth of that speed. Synchron's approach, which by the way, drew on eye gazing as well. So it used this assistive technology was actually at half or a fifth of that speed. So in fact, it was slower than today's kind of standard of eye gazing. And I'm sure that they will work on the algorithms and they'll improve it and it will get better, but they're working off such a low base at this point right. that I think they're going to be quite limited in the number of applications they can run. But in the end, that's up to them. They're, they're gonna work hard and get patient impact. Our benefit is that we get this high value data and we can now build on top of it. And so as a company, like, are you venture backed? Like how much money have you raised? Like, where are you in terms of that? Like, you know, as a company? Yeah, while we existed really on our own dime and grew organically for most of our uh, history to date in 2018, we realized that to in fact meet the demand from medical device players who wanted us to work on innovation technology and new neurotechnology, they came knocking on our door. We started designing technologies for them and products for them we realized that exceeded our organic ability to grow. So we went out to search for growth capital and very quickly with the simultaneous rise of BCI with what Neuralink was doing and the profile and awareness that Elon Musk was managing to, to drive, you know, a whole investment community suddenly started becoming interested. This 
above and beyond medical devices. So medtech, obviously, that investment community also grew in 2018, had some of its best years, have, have, was in a very different state to where it was in 2008 when we started. But added to that was this sudden interest in BCI. Mm. What is happening here? And I think an interest that uh, expands beyond medical applications. And I, I think they're right. I mean, this kind of BCI, if you think about it, it's all about data and bandwidth. And so you could draw an easy parallel to mainframe, to PC, to mobile phone, what's next? Yep. Well, are we always going to sit here doing this? I very much doubt it. And my sense is the next thing will be a BCI. And so we started raising capital. I brought on board some excellent partners in Remind, Christian Angermeyers. Oh, yes. We know, I know Christian. Christian's been on here a couple of times. Oh, has he? Yeah. So his fund is focused on mental health. Um, uh, Max and, and Jan drive that effort and Catherine at, at Remind. And, and they've been excellent partners, focused sort of on mental health, focused on the impact we have. And we then raised capital from other sources, added to that uh, Teal Capital and an, a number of other institutional investors, and currently are closing a round. We've got, uh, in fact, a term sheet on the table that we're closing on at the moment that's led by Catalio, which is another healthcare uh, venture fund. Mm. They're focused sort of on medtech and Remind. So to do all of this and accelerate these efforts, you've got to access third party and institutional capital. And we felt the time was right. So how much have you raised to this point? Internally, we invested uh, around $20, $25 million of our own profits. But in terms of external capital, we will now have raised uh, in excess of $75 million. Gotcha. And so this is perhaps not the best term. What is the killer app? What is the thing now that you're kind of getting to this point, going from those bank of supercomputers to the thumbnail and others are even doing it wirelessly. But as you say, there's some some pretty big limitations there. Where do we see this first? Because obviously you you have outside investors now and investors want to see a kind of a path to profits, a path to growth, et cetera. What's the plan there? How do you see this developing? Because again, if you go back to, I've talked to more than one person in this world who's like, you know, the future is telepathy. You know, we're all just going to be able to read each other's thoughts because they're going to have a BCI and they're going to be able to talk to each other and we won't even need, you know, like speaking will be passe. Now, I don't know if you have a view on that. That seems completely bananas to me. I don't can't really conceive of that. But um, you obviously have a much better sense because you're, you know, you're on this coal face in a way that few are. Yeah. Um, what the question doesn't nuance is where, what my personal preference is to what I think will happen uh, one day. But I am in no two minds that, in fact, this uh, vision that you just talked about of us potentially being able to communicate with each other through a BCI without actually uttering the words out loud is possible and will happen. And I base that on what I already see happening today with individuals who are not able-bodied, who are not at our level mm. of physical and what they need to do. And they have no other choice but to use this kind of tool to communicate, to affect other things. And that's sort of restoring function. And we're really strong on that. That's our primary focus to restore function, yeah. to address neurological disorders and use this technology in the here and now and help patients. A no brainer. But the next part is when you talk about enhancement. That starts opening a, a, an ethical question. It's why we've created an, an, an ethics advisory board and we'll be announcing that shortly as well mm. because we felt that we need to start asking these very important questions today. Enhancement is already happening today. When I see a tetraplegic patient being able to operate a system faster than an able-bodied person, that's enhancement. 
Uh, the reaction times on certain applications with our patients are a second faster than an able-bodied person. 50% faster than an able-bodied person. That's enhancement. And so we've got to ask the question now of what will follow next. But ultimately, my sense is that we are looking at the mainframe PC, mobile phone, and then BCI. We will have to figure out how we use it and what will be a benefit and whatnot. And I can't imagine this, though. I think to your point, you've kind of mentioned it earlier, of this not being invasive at some point. Because no one's going to be like, yeah. I mean, maybe they will in 100 years from now when it's so wildly enhancing to your capabilities. But for the foreseeable, I can't believe the masses are going to elect to have brain surgery. Yeah, and and that sort of brings me home to another key part of your question, which is BlackRock is focused on applications that we can see being deployed, Mm. having patient impact and generating revenue in the next year, three years, five years. That is what we are focused on because as you say, we have investors that we are also accountable to, but also because we feel for this kind of technology to progress To get to the next levels, it needs to be in the hands of patients. It needs to have efficacy today. We can't sit here designing the perfect product because we will get it wrong. And instead, we need to push and drive this technology safely to patients, get it in their hands, get them to use it and take benefit from it. Have tetraplegics benefit from increased independence and improved quality of life. Have people with hearing loss starting to hear better than they've ever been able to hear before or addressing a neurological disorder like epilepsy and stopping seizures outright. That is right now our focus. Mm. Where it will go, from my perspective, is also quite clear. The question is of timing. And then we get to the point you just made, which is, will a consumer product be possible when it's invasive? And I think what we will see is that the risk of invasiveness will drop. People will become a little bit more comfortable with it. Today, a pacemaker is deployed as a prophylactic. Because we've become so accustomed to it, we don't actually, not all of us at least, see an issue in putting a pacemaker in our heart as a prophylactic because the reward is clear and the risk in our heads has been reduced over 30, 40 years. So my sense is we will also be more accepting of semi-invasive or less invasive technologies. Look at cochlear implants. These are things and incisions just behind the ear. This is no longer a open the head and the brain and, and I mean... I can see why people would be very concerned by that. So I think we'll see people reducing their sort of barrier of of what they would accept. But what we will see above all is the reward side, multiplying and going through the roof. And then the risk reward calculation will be very different from where it has been over the last 20 years. The reason why we don't have these technologies benefiting patients today is because the efficacy wasn't there. The reward was not high enough and the risk was too concerning. And that's what we will rebalance. And I think we will see deployment increasingly of less invasive, semi-invasive and even invasive technologies. Right. And so what is the, you know, the kind of go to market, so to speak, for what you guys are doing? Is there a particular application or is it just, is it going to be like a patient by patient thing? You know, I'm just trying to understand kind of what the actual product is and, you know, can you just put it in and it can do kind of any number of functions or is it like, okay, we're going to, We're going to focus on allowing tetraplegics to communicate first, for example. Yeah, so we have we have specific applications. Uh, Some of them are still confidential. But on the tetraplegia side, what we aim to do first is provide mouse and cursor control 
uh, what we endeavor to do second is communication. These come from us understanding the patient population. We've been working with them, uh, keep very tight relations with them, done the surveys. It turns out that, in fact, to tetraplegic patient, the most important thing is not walking again. Many of them have come to terms with that uh, situation, but what they put much higher on their priority list is the restoration of sensory feedback, of feeling again, mm. is the ability to communicate. Uh, just talked with a patient, an ALS patient out of Europe uh, a week ago, and he sends his care workers out of the room for one hour a day because he has no privacy. Whenever he communicates, he does so through voice control. There is for him no way to have a private thought. So he sends them out. What if he could have a BCI where he can privately think the thought, the idea, the email he wants to send, the comment he wants to make to his loved one, and it gets recorded without anybody around hearing what it is. Right, right, right. Um, and for some ALS patients, when they start progressing towards locked-in, there is no way for them to communicate. There is no eye-tracking, eye-gazing that will work if your eyes are closed and immobile. Speech is gone very, very early on, usually, when ALS progresses aggressively. And so these individuals start ending up in locked-in syndrome, which means no communication at all. Right. So those are the kind of applications and products, distinct products, that we're focusing on first. It's these patients have no other choice. So from that perspective, it's a reward that they cannot otherwise in any other shape or form get. The risk of an implant, which obviously we address by working with the FDA and getting clearance and making sure that the product is safe, is in manageable constructs. Will that be good enough for a consumer to just put in so that they can uh, do a P2P communication? No, but we're working on it. Right, right. And the, the timing? We will see this technology pending um, FDA clearance available to uh, tetraplegic patients as early as mid of next year. So 2023. Wow. Very exciting. And just so like finally, just to kind of as we zoom back and go back to the 80s when that, you know, this was first kind of really proven in a lab. And then we kind of throw it forward to that kind of, you know, enhancement idea in terms of where we are with the technology, do you feel like there's still many steps to go? Or are we kind of at an inflection point? How do you think about this? You've been doing this for, you know, 15 years or so, and where we are in terms of just how far the technology is, has come and where it needs to go. Having done disruptive technology in other fields, including e-commerce, I am convinced that we are at the inflection point. And then we look at what kind of companies have come about in the last five years, if you compare it to 2008, where there was very little progress, in the last five years alone, we have seen another neuromodulation join the big neuromod big guys, right? Nevro joined uh, uh, the big guys. Then we had a company like Inspire that does a sleep apnea implant that's now, I don't know, six or seven billion dollar market cap. Wow. We've seen peripheral nerve applications to address pain. We have seen a true mushrooming of companies deploying various techniques to address these things in a better way. And then finally, I'll get to technology. We have worked on this ourselves for 15 years. It's been worked on for way longer than that. It needed some of this maturing to get to this point. You now have Neuralink, you have precision neuroscience working on improved uh, surface electrodes, Ben over there, Matt at Paradromics, and I'm sure to miss out some and, and, and I do, don't do so on purpose. I'll miss out on Thomas Oxy because this isn't actually a BCI company. He's an, he's an endovascular EEG company. But even that has its purpose, right? But all of this is happening now, improving the technology at a much faster rate than one company 
could have done. And so even from a technological perspective, I feel we are ready. We may not have the product, the fully wireless, mm. fully consumer palatable product yet. Yeah. And that may take whatever it is, five years or 10 years or whoever, who knows how long exactly. But we have technology today that can be deployed for patient benefit today. And that is accelerating now at Moore's Law speeds. Because if I just look at what we've done, we've gone, when we started BlackRock, we were 100 channels was the top of the game. Mm. Today, we work on 10,000 channel technology. And just for three years ago, we were talking about 1,000 channels. 10,000 is the kind of the number of inputs you can analyze from the brain. The number of inputs from neural signals, right? So we talked about 100. We were the, the first company to have 100 back in 2008. Then uh, uh, three years ago, we talked about 1,000. Now we're showing 10,000 channels. And in fact, our next animal study on an electrode will be 60,000. So you can just see how this is exponentially uh, growing. So data rates, implantable technology, deep machine learning. Where would we be hmm. without deep machine learning? And I, I gave you that example of going from nine months, nine months down to, to three minutes. minutes. Right. Without the deep machine learning that's happened over the last 10 years, we would not have been able to show that. That would have stopped us from getting this from one patient to the second, to the third, to the fourth, yeah. as quickly as we now are able to. So I think it's a confluence of many different factors that are, for me, are a very clear indication that we're at, at the inflection point. It's exciting times. Oh, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else in the world. Right. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain that all. I think it's completely fascinating. And I got to come out to Utah, see it for myself. Please do. We'll endeavor to show you how maybe even one of our patients interacts with the technology and what it does. We've started working, by the way, on, on VR, um, oh, to wow. use VR to give able-bodied people a sense of how the technology works. So for example, uh, we've created a demo where you can put on a headset and hear what a cochlear implant does for you. And actually, you'd be shocked. You and I would say, this is not good enough. Right. A cochlear implant patient accepts it because it's either not hearing at all or hearing totally. a roboticized voice. But we're working on that to give able-bodied individuals a sense of what does it mean to be tetraplegic or hearing loss or suffering from epilepsy or depression right. and then showing what the technology does already today and that is all the time we have i want to thank marcus i want to thank you all for the ratings for the reviews for you know telling your friends and neighbors i know i thank you every week but i do appreciate it and i will be writing in the times this weekend so do check that out at thetimes.co.uk or find me on the twitters at danny fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk it's always nice to hear from folks anyhow that is it for this week i hope you guys enjoyed that one and it made you think um who knows perhaps one day we'll all have telepathy it's kind of crazy to think about. But that's it for me this week. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.